And thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Yes, Debunking Works, Even in a Pandemic, by Tim Caulfield. It was first broadcast live on the 30th of July, 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub Online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that, that kind, kind introduction. Uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to talk uh, with you to what I consider my peeps, the people that I really feel like uh, we are out there trying to fight the, the good fight. Uh, and that, of course, is the fight against uh, misrepresentations of, of science uh, and misrepresentations more, more broadly. So, again, thank you very much. Uh, for this this opportunity, and I and I think that what I'm going to talk about today um, is a really really hot topic. I mean, it's it's become central, a central issue both from a health perspective, but also from a policy perspective, and that really is how we fight this infodemic uh, uh, associated with the pandemic that we're all struggling with. Now we have been researching this um, academically. We have several big research grants on this on this exact topic. So we have been looking at this and I'll talk about some of our data, but we are exploring this from a, a number a number of angles. Um, and as part of that exploration, um, we really want to figure out how we can get the public engaged in in this in this battle, in this fight. And I'll come back to that uh, at the end. But my my but my real message is uh, look, debunking works. You know, it works, and we really all need to be in, uh, involved in this. Uh, and and uh, at the end of my talk, I'm going to come back to what the evidence actually says about how how to debunk and what kind of debunking seems to be the most effective. But why this has become such a huge, hugely important topic, of course, is because there is so much misinformation out there right now. Uh, around around the pandemic, and that misinformation is doing real harm. Now, I, I've been studying misinformation for decades, uh, as I've said. You know, I've looked at it in the context of genetics and stem cells, and I've looked at it a lot in the context of alternative medicine and in the in the emerging wellness industry. Um, so this this problem, of course, has been around for a very long time. And one of the interesting things, and I'm curious if this this audience agrees with this. Um, because you would uh, notice this trend too, uh, people are taking this topic very seriously now. Over the last two, three years, uh, entities from the World Health Organization to research institutions to universities to governments, both regional uh, and national, are now taking the issue of misinformation very seriously. You know, I think it started with uh, the election of Donald Trump, with Brexit, with climate change, uh, with anti-vax rhetoric, and now uh, with the pandemic, people are increasingly recognizing that this is a real issue. Uh, and, and then in some respects, that's good news because we have more and more data um, on, on misinformation and also more and more research on what we can do about it, what we can do about it as individuals, as uh, communities, uh, as professionals, how we can respond uh, to the spread of misinformation. So that's really what you know, I, wanna, I wanna talk about today. Um, uh, but look, we all know there has been an incredible bout uh, of misinformation spread uh, about the coronavirus, uh, about the source of the coronavirus. We have the bioweapon stuff. We have the five, uh, the five G myth. 
um, about about various kinds of, of cures, you know, from drinking cow urine to drinking bleach to all these alternative remedies uh, to things like the hydroxychloroquine debacle. There's really misinformation um, everywhere. Um, and what one of the things that's fascinating is not only are these these kind of new uh, bits of misinformation, there's also the, this further embrace of conspiracy theories that have really been around for a long, a long time. If there's a conspiracy theory out there, people have figured out how to shoehorn that conspiracy theory into a coronavirus story. So as I said, the 5G one has become incredibly popular and, and people are st- continuing to believe it. There's the bioweapon one. There's the big pharma cures. So that's another good example of a long-standing conspiracy theory that has been sort of shoehorned uh, into the coronavirus. Um, and a lot of these a lot of these conspiracy theories have uh, been used to forward other kinds of ideological uh, agenda, which I'll come back to in a moment. But it really is amazing how if there's a conspiracy theory, uh, it has been made to fit the coronavirus. So I'm waiting for a COVID-19 came from the grassy knoll. You know we're going to hear that. Uh, that's going to be next. Um, but what matters in a lot of these conspiracy theories do sound crazy. Uh, and, and you wonder who could possibly believe them. But as this audience knows, people do believe this stuff. Um, you look at the data from around around the world, the, the public perception data, uh, and it's pretty consistent. You know, so here's a information uh, survey that was done uh, in the UK in May. And there's been more recent ones with similar data where you find things like this. About a fifth of people believe the coronavirus in the UK is a hoax, right? Complete hoax. In the United States, of course, the data is even is even worse. Um, this was a one, again, I think also from May, where they found three in 10 Americans believe that the coronavirus was made in a lab. Um, and then this one, this data is incredible. So only one in four. And what's interesting about this is also it demonstrates, again, that sort of ideological co- component to a lot of this cons- these conspiracy theories and a lot of these beliefs more broadly. But only one in four uh, uh, Republicans disbelieve the Bill Gates coronavirus theory. Now, this is I think this is pretty amazing because that's a pretty hardcore, that's a pretty hardcore conspiracy theory. Uh, this is the conspiracy theory, as all you guys know. This is the conspiracy theory that Bill Gates uh, caused the, the, the pandemic so he can push vaccines, so he can put microchips in all of us, so he can you know, follow us and monitor our behavior. That's a hardcore conspiracy theory. And the numbers are remarkable. This is a more recent study that found that 28% of Americans believe that, believe the Bill Gates uh, microchip one, which is just mind, mind-blowing, I think. They have that number of people willing to say they believe it. Um, in my own country of Canada, you know, I like to believe that we're kind of a little bit more of a rational country compared to our, our neighbor to the south, but untrue. So this is a study that was actually done by a colleague of mine at Carleton, uh, about half of Canadians, I think it was like 48%, 47%, but, uh, believe at least one of the, of the well-known conspiracy theories, about half. Uh, to give you just one example, uh, this is the bioweapon conspiracy theory. You can see about, you know, of all respondents, 26%, 26% of, of Canadians believe that. And look at the, look at the demographic uh, for, uh, you know, the younger demographic, the 18 to 29, about 30% uh, of, of those individuals believe that conspiracy theory. Now, that's interesting. That number is uh, interesting for a number of reasons. Um, but you know, why? Why that, that does that demographic believe more? Well, the authors didn't study this, but they speculate. Uh, Josh Greenberg is one of them. He speculates that it's 
it's uh, not because you know that demographic is more naive that demographic has less critical thinking skills but it's just exposure that demographic is on social media more and so therefore uh they're more likely to believe and that and that of course feeds into that well-known cognitive bias the availability bias if you see something enough it becomes more believable and and that's the speculation why you have that so where is this coming from you know where is this coming from this follows nicely on what I just said about exposure to social media. Um, we, as I said, we, we're studying this right now and we're looking at how the traditional news sources are representing the coronavirus uh, and how social media is representing it and how it's being represented on search engines. Um, and, and in general, the news media hasn't been perfect. You know, traditional news sources haven't been perfect for sure. There've been problems or there's been hype. Uh, there has been some misrepresentations of science. But pretty early days, the traditional news media recognized this was serious. And the reporting, I'll put it this way, it wasn't terrible, right? You know, and, and we've done a lot of research on how the traditional media represents uh, health and science. And, and this wasn't terrible, right? But holy cow, social media has been a complete mess, right? A complete mess. And this is just uh, uh, one example of the data that sort of supports that. And it's also what we're seeing in our own research. You know, those that believe the uh, conspiracy theories much more likely to get their information from social media. This is was one of the uh, uh, studies that was done in, in the UK. Um, and what they found is if people believe a conspiracy theory, they're more likely to uh, get their information from entities like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Right. Probably doesn't surprise anyone out there that that's what the data says. But it's good to have that research. Uh, this was a study that came out just today, just today. Same conclusion here. In Canada, people who get their news from entities like Facebook, more likely to be misinformed, more likely to believe uh, conspiracy theories. Again, no surprise, right? No surprise, but helpful to have have that information because that also gives us a sense of where we need to go, right? What we need to do to fight the spread. Um, and, and then there was this study that came out earlier this month, um, and I'm sure many people uh, uh, involved in our, our meeting today saw this, our gathering saw this. This is uh, the, the study that found that most of the misinformation comes from, from Facebook. Now, I, I think we need to be careful not to overinterpret this data because they looked at it in a very specific way. They looked at it, you know, here's, here's 7,000 uh, bits of misinformation that have been spread. Where, where was the original source of that misinformation? And these guys found that um, over 4,000 came, the original source was on, was from Facebook. Again, uh, really highlighting the power of social media in this context uh, and how it's being, how it's being spread. Um, how celebrities, you know, I, I, I have studied celebrity culture and their role in, in, in misinformation for a long time. And no surprise, no surprise celebrities and prominent individuals more broadly, I think that's a better way to, to, to frame it, are, are playing a role here. Um, so, you know, their, their celebrities are talking about things like immune boosting, which I'll come back to in a bit. They're helping to spread the 5G story. You know, Woody Harrelson's a really good example of that. They're helping to spread the misinformation uh, about, about hydroxychloroquine, Dr. Oz and Elon Musk. And of course, of course, Donald Trump, a good example uh, of that. So they're, they're a big part of the story. So, and, and that matters. So this is a study that got a, a little bit of attention from, from Oxford which I think find is fascinating. Now, again, we have to be careful not to overinterpret this, but, but what they did is they looked at hundreds of bits of misinformation. So uh, things in popular culture that have been deemed incorrect through fact-checking and then, you know, sort of reverse engineer it. Where did it come from? Well, they found that 
that 20% of those bits of information came from prominent individuals, um, which is a lot, but not a huge amount, right? 20% of them. But then they found that um, 69% of what's spread on social media uh, comes from those individuals. So that's, that's very useful, right? Because that, what that tells us is that, yes, celebrities and prominent individuals play an important role in, in starting these conversations. But what really has an impact is when we spread, right? When we spread on social media, when we share on social media what those individuals say. So it shows that it's a both a top down and, a, and but very much a bottom up phenomenon. Uh, so it, really interesting. The other other source of misinformation, uh, you know, and I'm fascinated by this. I've actually made you know documentaries, so uh, I I've been following the data on the impact of documentaries really really carefully. Um, and, and this has been another source of misinformation and a really, really powerful one. So these are these documentaries that have been put together. I call them documentaries because they're, you know, they're not really fact driven, uh, that get rapidly shared, uh, on social media. So this is the, the little documentary, we'll call it a documentary. It's like a, it's a press conference, uh, that was held just a couple days ago in Washington by doctors, uh, American, America's frontline doctors put this video together. It's very slick. Um, and it was spread by you know, Donald Trump, uh, um, by uh, Lewis Hamilton, one of my favorite <laughs> athletes, uh, and many other prominent individuals. And it got 20 million views. It felt like instantaneously, right? Even though it's been taken down off Facebook and off of Instagram and other uh, platforms, it's still available. Uh, and still being seen. Uh, and another, probably the best example of this is is that horrible documentary, which really was kind of put together like a slick documentary called Plandemic. I'm sure everyone remembers this one. This was this documentary that came out that you know uh, interviewed an expert, uh, very persuasive sounding, uh, but it again got immediate uptake um, and had a real impact and continues to have an impact. And look at this data. This is from the New York, uh, New York Times piece that came out just a little while ago and really maps. It compares the uptake of Plandemic, right? This sort of independent documentary, uh, this friend from this fringe group, uh, how it was spread, the uptake and compared it to T Taylor Swift's City of Love and to the office reunion and Plandemic blows them away, right? So what's going on there? What's going on there? Well, first of all, and I think this is something that's really important that we can all learn from, these are powerful narratives, these, these documentaries, right? Uh, they speak to people's fears. They speak to people's values. Uh, they have stories to tell. And they have very powerful testimonials, right? And, and we all know that a powerful testimonial, a powerful anecdote can overwhelm our, our scientific uh, thinking. And there's a really interesting study that backs it up. They actually did a little, uh, an analysis of, of, you know, providing people with testimonials will overwhelm our ability to think uh, critically. And that's exactly what these documentaries do. We did a study where we uh, explored uh, the use of testimonials in the marketing of unproven stem cell therapies. Uh, and, and no surprise, you know, we have these really powerful narratives that are incredibly effective at marketing unproven therapies, even, even in the face uh, of data uh, to the contrary. And that's exactly, of course, what's happened with the pandemic. Uh, but look at this other data. And I think this is really interesting. Again, a very recent study, as I said at the beginning, we're starting to get a lot of this great data that we can use to inform uh, form our work here. This was a study of, of YouTube videos and credibility. Uh, and so what they, what they found was the more slickly produced, right? Um, the more these videos look like they're high quality, the more they're perceived as being credible, 
right? And that's exactly what these videos do, right? They, they have a presentation that looks very credible and Plandemic did that for sure, right? Uh, but so, so of other, other videos, you see this very often in the anti-vax videos, they have this perceived credibility because of the slick nature uh, of, of their production. And that's another way that they're um, influencing people. So these are these really kind of obvious kind of, of, of forms of misinformation in the context of, of the coronavirus. But something that I'm really interested in, our team is really interested in, is also sort of the more subtle forms of misinformation. And one of the best examples of that is this idea that you can boost your immune system. This idea that you can boost your immune system, and, you, and we've mapped it, you can see it through search, uh, um, search trends, spiked in March, like incredibly, <laughs> just incredible spike and people searching for the uh, terms like immune boosting, immune booster, um, absolutely everywhere. And it's a concept that's being pushed by so many different entities. And one of the reasons we find this so concerning is the idea of immune boost boosting doesn't seem as wacky as 5G. It doesn't seem as crazy as the bioweapon. It doesn't seem as crazy as drinking bleach. But in many respects, it's just as unscientific, right? And it, but it has intuitive appeal. So we're worried that these kinds of concepts are going to endure, right? In part because uh, they see, because of that intuitive appeal, they're not triggering the same kind of regulatory response, and they're not triggering the same kind of response from the the platforms, from the social media platforms. So you know, things that aren't going to boost your immune system, yoga is not going to do it. Chiropractors aren't going to do it. Homeopaths aren't going to do it. Naturopaths aren't going to do it. Herbalists and one of my idols. One of my absolute favorite, I've got a Tom Brady doll sitting right there, by the way, is Tom Brady. Tom Brady's not going to boost your immune system, but he's pushing these immune boosting uh, products. He's exploiting, he's exploiting the pandemic uh, to forward his brand and to sell product, which is pretty, pretty infuriating. Um, and, and as everyone knows, you know, immune boosting, you can't boost your immune system. You can't, you, know, you want a healthy immune system. You want a, uh, an immune system that isn't compromised, but you can't get sort of an extra bo bo boost to it. It's, you know, your immune system is a very complex system, right? Uh, but these entities are, are forwarding this. Um, and, and we're seeing it absolutely everywhere. We're doing a study of, of Instagram, um, and we just actually submitted it for, for publication. Um, where we looked at hundreds of posts. I actually personally, you know, sort of a, before we did this study, I just wanted to get a sense of what was out there. And I looked at hundreds of Instagram posts on immune boosting. You guys, I did not see a single post that was scientifically accurate or even kind of signaled towards some kind of signal, uh, scientific accuracy. It was complete nonsense, which in some respects shouldn't surprise us. You know, it's a very visual medium, uh, uh, Instagram. You know, it's all about these beautiful pictures um, and there's a lot of implied marketing going on. And it's exactly what we found in our, our study when we did a sort of more systematic analysis, a lot of marketing going on, uh, but no, no um, scientific analysis at all. And very much, you guys, very much kind of legitimizing this idea of immune boosting, uh, so much so that it's kind of taken on a health halo. Uh, so this is another study that we've done. This is out for peer review also. It's a preprint. I want to emphasize that this is a preprint where we looked at hundreds. So this basically what we wanted to do with this study is we want, we were kind of saying, okay, if you were interested in immune boosting and you sat down, you went to a search engine and you searched immune booster, immune boosting, any of those things, what do you get? You know, what kind of website are you gonna get? And we looked at a hundred of those hits, hundreds of those hits. And what we found, what I think it was like over 220. What we found was that over 85% of those websites 
um, portrayed uh, immune boosting as effective and as beneficial to avoiding COVID, which is remarkable, right? That's scientifically inaccurate. And almost more remarkable, I think, is we found that only 10% of those websites had any kind of critique. And, and, what we, and we didn't even go in and say, is this critique accurate or not? Only 10% had any kind of critique to the concept of immune boosting. So I think that really gives you a sense of how pervasive the inaccuracies are out there around, around this, this concept. And we really think this matters, you guys. Um, because because immune boosting now is almost has a health halo around it. So you'll have even legitimate organizations saying, boost your immune system with exercise. Exercise is great for you. Boost your immune system by he eating healthy. Eating healthy is great for you, but it's not going to magically boost your immune system. And, and we're worried that it's giving legitimacy to this concept, and it's a legitimacy that's going to endure. Okay, other sources um, are... are uh, entities or in individuals that have been called super spreaders, right? Super spreaders. Um, so we have social media spreading it. We have celebs, you know, uh, you know, helping to spread misinformation. Uh, but we also have, you know, individuals that have been called super spreaders. And these are um, often entities and particular people that have a brand that they want to push. Um, this is a, a headline from Natural News, it's just a horrible, vile entity that many, many of you probably know that push misinformation about uh, about health and about alternative therapies and you know anti-vax stuff. It's just a horrible entity, uh, and, and it's been identified as one of the super spreaders of misinformation uh, in this context. Uh, NewsGuard, uh, an entity that many people probably know, has done a, a study of super spreaders, and what they found is um, people like Rush Limbaugh are super spreaders. Look at that. Uh, two million four hundred thousand likes for some mis misinformation saying that you know uh, the coronavirus rhetoric has been uh, overblown and mis misinformed. And then this one, the pharmacy again, many people probably know this place, uh, sort of an alternative medicine, natural health kind of place. Again, another super spreader. So you have these super spreaders playing a big role. But again, super spreaders can only play a role if people are sharing their content, right? So we'll we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Uh, and of course, of course, anti-vaxxers also a big part of this story, a big part of this story. Uh, and we've been following this really closely. We've done a lot of work on vaccination hesitancy and the anti-vax rhetoric out there for, you know, really for years. Uh, and we saw this early. And, and I'm sure you've seen this in the UK. You've seen this in the US. Wherever you are, you've probably seen a lot of this anti-vax rhetoric emerge. And what's fascinating is they and some of these headlines are actually from pretty early days from from February and, and March uh, and April, where they were really trying to position the anti-vax uh, um, area or, or the anti-vax position uh, as as being one of you know freedom of expression, as uh, about choice, about liberty. And, and research tells us if you use that kind of you know sort of these ideologically appealing ideas like choice, like liberty, um, like freedom. As, as a way to get across um, misinformation, unscientific concepts can be very effective, right? And that's exactly what's happening here, right? They're talking about choice. They're talking about the idea that anti-vax or, or, or that the coronavirus is going to be used in order to have these horrible mandatory laws around vaccines. Um, uh, and of course, they're also using uh, it to push other kinds of conspiracy theories. Uh, this was a uh, a talk by by Del Bigtree, a name that many people undoubtedly know, one of the most prominent anti-vaxxers anywhere in the world, where he gave a talk pretty early. Again, I think this was pretty early in in the whole uh, pandemic, and again, very much positioning the anti-vax um, 
community uh, about being about choice, about being against big pharma, about being against government. And, and unfortunately, these tactics seem to have worked. Okay, so we have all this misinformation out there. You guys know that, right? You know that. What's the impact? What's the harm? Um, well, I think it's good to remind ourselves this really does have a, 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 it does create a lot of harm, right? There's been physical harm associated with with this misinformation. There's been deaths associated with this misinformation. There's been interesting research that has shown an increase in stigma and discrimination as a result of of this misinformation. Um, uh, there's property damage. You know, we, one example is you know tower 5G towers being destroyed. There's also been a lot of science and health policy uh, problems, and I think this is often often overlooked. Uh, this misinformation has not only influenced not only influenced the public, but it's also had an impact on on clinicians, on policymakers, and probably the best example of that, and I'll come to it in a bit, is the hydroxychloroquine story, right? I mean, there, that really has had a, a broad impact. Uh, the other adverse impact is it creates a chaotic information environment. I actually think this is often downplayed. This is an important part of, 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 of how misinformation causes harm, not just in the context of, of the coronavirus and this pandemic, but I think really um, in any area. Um, and, and that's what's happening here. There's interesting research that came out not that long ago uh, that found that this misinformation causes sort of a, a information overload that not only causes people to be more confused, no surprise there, right? But also makes it more likely that people will believe misinformation. And I think that's just because it's so chaotic. It becomes more difficult to tease out what's real and what's not real, right? It creates this overload. And it also, I think, causes us to deal with that information in a kind of frenetic way, right? We don't pause, we don't reflect. We, we respond kind of intuitively. I'm going to come back, come back to that. So it causes real harm, but we have to remember that, right? It causes arson and assault and racial tensions and poisonings. This matters. Right? What we're talking about tonight really, really matters. Um, but let's look, let's dig a little bit deeper in these kinds of, um, the kinds of impact that misinformation can have. And these are just a couple examples. You know, I could do hours and hours of this because there has been a lot of research on this over just the last couple of months. But this was an interesting study that was in JAMA. A uh, very straightforward study, but I, th I still think it's kind of interesting, where they looked at internet searches uh, associated with unproven COVID therapies, and no surprise, right? no surprise, what they found is endorsements by prominent individuals, Elon Musk, Donald Trump, had an impact on people searching, right? And, and people searching is a pretty good proxy for public interest, public expectations, um, this was, a, again, same group from Carleton um, that did was looking at uh, beliefs in Canada around this. And in this study, they found that 23% of Canadians, despite what the evidence says around hydroxychloroquine, and I think we have a pretty robust body of evidence emerging now, right? I think we do. I think it's fair to say that. Despite what the evidence says, and, and despite the fact that the the news media, right? So the traditional sources of news media have have aver, have advertised. I don't know if advertised is the right term. Have 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 had stories talking about what the actual evidence says about the lack of efficacy for hydroxychloroquine. Despite all that, you see 23% of Canadians believe it's efficacious, right? And again, you see 31% of that demographic, that 18 to 29%, believing it's efficacious. Like really shocking numbers for me. I think you see it's still that high. Um, and then look at this number. I'm sure you guys have seen seen this, this data before. But so it, misinformation spread on social media has an impact on public expectations. 
It has an impact on public beliefs, but it also has an impact on the clinic, right? So this is a study from the United States. I think it's probably lower in the UK and Canada, uh, for sure, I would guess. But still, I think this data is is interesting. Prescriptions of hydroxychloroquine. So this is clinicians acting, right, acting, surged 2,000% as a result of public expectation, I would suggest, and and uh, endorsements by prominent individuals like like Trump. So that matters, right? Um, all this misinformation also having, I'm worried it's going to have an impact on vaccine uptake. And this is starting to get more and more attention as we get closer to, hopefully, uh, a vaccine. So this is research from the United States. Now, we have to be careful not, not to, you know, it's correlation versus causation. But I, I think it's fair to say, and it's scientifically plausible to say, that the misinformation that's circulating is having an impact on people's uh, um, hesitancy around the vaccine. So let's look at some, what some of the numbers say, and there's lots of surveys on this. Um, this was a study that found that 23% of the, of the population said they would not get, would not get uh, the vaccine, which is pretty high, right? Um, this was another study, came out in May, uh, and they've had another one quite recently that had the same results that only half of Americans said they would get the, the COVID vaccine. So, you know, you layer on top of that all the other vaccination hesitancy issues, layer on top of that um, uh, access issues, uh, layer on top of that, you know, fear of needles, all those other things that kind of have the potential and practical things to heighten uh, vaccination hesitancy. And these numbers are pretty grim and pretty depressing. What you'd want right now, what you would want right now is this, you know, really high enthusiasm uh, for the vaccine. Now, I'm hopeful, you know, I'm hopeful that we can do good messaging around the vaccine. I'm hopeful that that as it rolls out and as the public sees how the, va- uh, the re- how the research is done, and, and we have to make sure we do it well, that these numbers are going to be better than, than these grim, this grim data, but we'll have to wait and see. Right now, it's looking bad. So the numbers in Canada, um, pretty similar to the US, you know, 10% saying will not, likely not to get it, 17% not sure, only 49% saying definitely, which again, you know, pretty low numbers when you think about the urgency, when you think about all the other factors that can contribute to hesitancy in this context. The other thing that we have to talk about, of course, you know, I'm always, you know, people always say, oh, how can we fight this? I'm going to say this in just a few minutes. Um, we need uh, we need to have trustworthy science. But we've had these stories now about bad science in the area of, of COVID-19. Um, and, and part of it, you know, I'm actually writing a piece right now for this for the Royal Society of Canada. Um, there has been there has been, you know, really unfortunate retractions and high profile retractions of, of, of studies relevant to the pandemic that could have an impact on public trust. Um, and and it, when those things happen, when when the public sees those things, it becomes much more difficult for me to say, as I'm about to say in just a few minutes, turn to the good science, trust the science. Now, this is in part, I think, a science literacy issue, because as everyone on, on, uh, involved in this meeting knows, this is how science happens, right? Retractions are part of science. But still, we want to make sure the science is done as well as possible and is completely transparent and isn't rushed, because we have to maintain that, that public trust. The other thing that's going on and is an incredible amount of polarization. Now, this is mostly happening in the United States. If you look at the data, it's happening in the UK less so, and it's definitely happening in Canada less so, but we still see that polarization. In some countries like Spain, there's also a lot of of polarized discourse, but this polarization um, is making it also much more difficult to fight fight misinformation because 
once it becomes part of someone's ideological brand, their own personal brand, it becomes much more difficult to change their minds. As you guys know, you, you're probably familiar with that, that problem. Uh, this is really interesting. Study. So another study from, from, from Canada where they said, so who do you trust? You know, you ask people and the numbers are similar in the UK, I believe. And if you survey, if you survey Americans, you get somewhat similar data. But the bottom line is if you actually ask people, who do you trust? Who do you trust? It's still kind of good news. You know, you have public health officials near the top, physicians, you know, academics near the top, and you have celebrities, et cetera, near the bottom. So that's what people will say when they trust. But what's fascinating from a science communication perspective is we know, you know despite these numbers, we know that celebrities and influencers um, have an impact. We know. They, people can say they don't trust them. But you look at the data, right? We know that these influencers uh, have, have an impact. Um, the other thing I want to highlight before we get to what we can do about it, how we should respond to this, is this is something I'm really passionate about. You know, I, I hope, and I'm, I, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was more optimistic about this. I'm becoming a little bit pessimistic. I hope that if, if we learn anything from this, I hope that one of the legacies from the pandemic will be an understanding of to that, that tolerating pseudoscience um, can lead to real problems because we've tolerated pseudoscience too long, right? We've had this tolerance of alternative therapies. We've had this tolerance of magical thinking. We've had this tolerance of, unscientific, of the unscientific wellness industry. We have that tolerance for years and then the pandemic comes along and, and we try to push back against things that we've tolerated. You know, IV vitamin therapy was bunk before the pandemic. It's bunk now. It's going to be bunk after. Reiki was bunk before the pandemic. Uh, it's bunk now, it's gonna be bunk after. It becomes much more difficult to fight misinformation when we've tolerated that inf misinformation before, where we've kind of officially kind of sanctioned it, when we've legitimized it by allowing it to be in our universities and we talk about it uh, in, in uh, conventional news sources in glowing terms. And then when the pandemic comes around, we can't all of a sudden go, oh, by the way, we didn't really mean that. A colonic really doesn't boost your immune system. Taking massive doses of supplements really doesn't, isn't beneficial. Reiki really can't boost your immune system. We need to be conceptually consistent. And I, I hope, I hope that the pandemic has taught us that. Okay, so how should we respond? What can we do uh, as individuals, you know, as a community? Um, well, of course, of course, we need a regulatory response and we need the social media platforms to act, right? And, you know, the good news <laughs> is that I think all the social media platforms are starting to recognize it more explicitly anyway, uh, their role in spreading misinformation. Um, we're starting to see warnings. Uh, we're starting to see redirects on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, um, even on Google. Um, you know, that's all good news, right? Uh, but the problem is that is it enough? Um, and it, are these strategies really evidence-based? And one of my colleagues, Gordon Pennycook, I'm going to refer to some of his work in a, in a bit, uh, has, has suggested that, you know, perhaps these things don't work as well as people are suggesting. Uh, so we really do need to figure out how we can, how the, uh, the, the social media platforms can respond. Another thing we need to wrestle with, and, I, uh, and I'm a legal scholar, so I find this fascinating, is how we balance freedom of expression with, with this challenge, right? How, how, do we, how, do we, how do we make that balance? Because we have to remember what we're asking these platforms to do. We're asking private actors, these social media platforms, to unilaterally decide you know, how, how we, what we can see, basically, what we can see, uh, what information we can access. And, and that's not an insignificant thing in a liberal democracy, right? So you know, I think that that is, 
uh, that's going to be something we're going to be wrestling, wrestling with, I think, for years to come. And, and we're going to be working on that, actually, in the very near future. Um, we also, of course, need the regulators to respond. I'm just going to use a couple examples from the United States and Canada. The you know, FTC has jumped in. You know, we'd like to see more. Obviously, there's resource issues. But at least they're taking this very, very seriously. And, we, and at least we have precedents that we can point to where they're, they're trying to stop people that are marketing this information. We're seeing the same thing in Canada. Health Canada actually has a website that you can go to and report a concern, report a scam. I love that. Are they doing enough? Probably not, right? But there are resource issues. Uh, but at, at least at least we have you know a precedent that we can point to. But what I really want to talk about, of course, is how we can debunk and the idea that we should all be de- debunking. We shouldn't shy away from it. And this is the right community, right? This is the community to, to do this. Um, we have to remember it's tough, right? A lot of people believe uh, in conspiracy theories. We have to remember there's you know, a complex reason why people believe this stuff. We have to remember to listen to people. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to talk about this in a minute. You know, it's easy to make fun of, of an ind- individual that believes a conspiracy theory. Um, but I really do think we need to listen and remember the sort of the social conditions that are uh, allowing those conspiracy theories to thrive, uh, that, that people may feel powerless, that, that people may not be able to cope with, with, with the fear uh, that that perhaps you know these individuals just have a, a different thinking style, and as people probably know, uh, people that believe in conspiracy theories more likely to believe in magical thinking, more likely to distrust, um, more likely to feel disconnected from society. So those are all important things to to remember, right? When we're when we're debunking. Um, oh, something happened there. There we go. Um, so the other thing I, I want to highlight, and I think this is really important, and something I'm fascinated with is uh, the concern about backfire. And I bet you a lot of people have heard this concern. So you go, well, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to fight this bit of misinformation. And, and the response is, well, it's useless. Debunking stuff does more harm than good, right? All you're going to do is cause people to get, become more entrenched in their views. All you're going to do is, call, is spread this misinformation more, right? And this has been often called the backfire effect. Um, and and the backfire effect has got a lot of traction and a lot, I know a lot of journalists believe it. I often, when I talk to journalists, they believe that the backfire effect is a very powerful phenomenon. And when I talk to other academics and other people that I'm trying to encourage and clinicians and scientists, when I'm trying to encourage them uh, to, to get involved in the fight against misinformation, they'll often say, well, what about the backfire effect? It doesn't really work. Or what about the deficit model? You know, it's, this is, well, these concerns I think are real, but, but what does the evidence actually say about how, 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 how much we should be concerned about them. And this matters because Facebook, for example, one of the reasons they have suggested they don't want to directly uh, um, uh, uh, counter misinformation is because they say, well, because we don't want to do this because of the backfire effect. We're worried we'll do more harm than good. But if you actually look at the evidence that surrounds the backfire myth, uh, it's a lot more, to be generous to, a lot more complex and often portrayed. And I would suggest the more recent research says that it doesn't happen that often. In fact, it's quite rare and maybe only happens in certain contexts. Um, There was a 2010 study that was very famous that got a lot of play around and and people, it had to do a lot with more of a political issue about the Iraq war um, and that people found backfire effect happening there. But if you look at it more broadly, it seems to be quite rare, right? The, the evidence of factual backfire is far more tenuous than prior research suggests. And I think that's an important message to remember. At a minimum, at a minimum, it isn't, a, it isn't so strong that it should scare us away from, from debunking. The other really important thing is, I often hear this, and I'm sure you guys do, 
is that if you debunk something, it just spreads it, right? So why you shouldn't debunk something because then you're just giving it oxygen. You shouldn't debunk something because it's, you're sort of enabling the myth. Well, this was a study that was done. And again, we need more research on this. I want to be careful not to hype this data because it's a complex phenomenon and we probably need a lot of studies to get a good sense of what's going on. But this study hints that perhaps that concern is overblown also that that um, spreading misinformation uh, or, or, or debunking something doesn't necessarily spread the misinformation in a way that causes people to believe that that misinformation more. So that's really important, right? The bottom line is the backfire effect shouldn't scare us away from debunking. So what, one of the things that we should also do, and, and you, maybe you guys have heard this also, is that you you want to debunk something kind of at the sweet spot, right? You want to maybe not debunk something when it's incredibly fringe and maybe no one's ever heard of it. And perhaps you want to get to it before it's too late, right? Before it's become, you know, like no one's going to be able to debunk um, uh, the, you know, JFK conspiracy theories. It's just become part of pop culture. So you want to get to it before it gets to that stage. So this study suggests, and again, complex phenomenon, hard to study this well. So this information, this research is only suggestive, right? But this study suggests that um, if there's a, there is kind of a sweet spot, you want to get to something early, uh, you want to debunk something early and, and, and delegitimize the source as quickly as possible in order to stop the spread. And they did this research in the context of the 5G conspiracy theory. And, and, they, and they suggest that we, didn't, we weren't robust enough, right? We didn't get at it. We weren't vigilant enough uh, uh, with this. And that has allowed the 5G conspiracy theory to spread. Um, but let's get to the, the bottom line. Uh, and the bottom line is, yes, it's worth it. It is worth it. It's worth uh, fighting misinformation. Uh, it's worth arguing. This is a well-known study. I bet a lot of people uh, uh, online uh, are familiar with this. Uh, this was a study that came out uh, last summer, um, just about a year ago. And it was a, it was a kind of a nice study because they used a bunch of different kind of methods. Uh, and what they basically found is very straightforward. Providing facts about a topic and uncovering the rhetorical techniques uh, used by, uh, by people spreading this information works. It can have a positive effect. Uh, but they also found, they also found, again, backing up what I just said about the backfire effect, is they did not find a backfire effect, right? They did not uh, have, find any backfire effect, even amongst vulnerable groups. And the vulnerable, <laughs> vulnerable groups they're talking about are Republicans and conservatives. Even among that group, they didn't find a backfire effect. So that's good news, right? That's good news. Um, and this was a study that's very relevant right on point what they found uh, is that if public health authorities public you know trusted voices uh and that's easier for people in canada to say that because in the united states there aren't a lot of trusted voices uh and probably more mixed in the uk too um but trusted voices like public health authorities if they get in there and they debunk they can have uh have an impact okay so what does effective debunking look like you know here's a quick list uh, it's not comprehensive. It's some of my favorite uh, points, um, but I think it's a pretty good list. You know, it's a good list to get us all started. So number one, as I just said, provide the science. Yes, it works. You provide good independent sources of information and use clear and shareable content. Now, I always try to think, you know, how is this, how is this debunk going to look on Twitter? How is this debunk going to look on, on Instagram and on Facebook? So think about that, right? Think about content that you can share that's science-based and, uh, and, and, and we'll work on social media. And what I often try to do is I have sort of a shareable nugget, but I also link uh, for those who want a deeper dive to some credible, more uh, source of information. Use trustworthy and independent sources. You know, that might f sound obvious, but I think 
think, think it's important. Um, and that also speaks to the, the value of having the good science out there, having the good science out there. Uh, the other thing, and this is interesting, is, is pointing to a scientific consensus. So there's interesting research from the climate change. Maybe some people are aware of this. The climate change um, area with GMOs, another area where, where we've seen the needle move a little bit, with, um, uh, but definitely with the vaccine uh, research. That If you can point to a scientific consensus, uh, you're more likely to have an impact on public perception. Now, it, that becomes very difficult for an area like the coronavirus. Perhaps not, right? If you're talking about a body of evidence, like we're seeing with hydroxychloroquine, even an emerging body of evidence, like we're seeing with masks, right? Um, you, I, I think that this data would still apply. And now we have to do the research to back up what I just said, but I think that's the case. And I think it's also important, even if you're pointing out a scientific consensus, not to do it in a dogmatic way. You want to also highlight that science evolves, right? So here's a scientific consensus. This is what we know now, but the science evolves. And there's some research to back up that if you do that, it's going to be more effective. The other interesting thing, I think, and this is, you know, sometimes it's hard. It's hard for us skeptics to do this. But, you know, be nice, be authentic, be empathetic, and be, be humble. Um, the research around this is interesting, right? So there has been studies that have shown that, that it, it, aggressive language is viewed as being less credible. Um, and there are also some interesting research, um, and again, hard to study it well, often this is qualitative stuff, but being authentic is, is you're often maybe more persuasive, but, but again, I think this makes, uh, it's also scientifically plausible because people are more likely to relate to you. Um, if you're, if you're a scientist who's viewed as just a talking head spitting out data, you're less likely to be persuasive as a scientist who's telling a story, right? It's a scientist who is a human being relating what they know and the work that they do and why their work is important, uh, it might have a bigger impact. Uh, consider uh, using a narrative, a creative communication strategies also all, always win. You know, I, and, and this is really important. You know, a lot of the data I talked about, about earlier was about how misinformation can be, uh, narratives can, can push misinformation. We've actually done research on this. We've held workshops on it. Uh, so we need to use narratives and stories to get across the good information, creative, communi uh, creative communication strategies, strategies to do uh, exactly that. The other thing you want to do uh, is highlight rhetorical tricks and logic gaps. You know, are, are they, you know, misrepresenting risk? Um, is this a conspiracy theory? Are they just relying on testimonials? That can also help persuade, persuade people. The other thing you want to do is you want to make the hook you want to make the, the fact the hook, not the misinformation, right? Um, and there's a little bit of data to back this up, you know, that that's the way you want to go. And then the other thing I think is number nine, I think is super important is you want to remember the general public is your audience, not the hardcore de de denier, right? You're not, we're never going to convince this person right here, the medical fascist, right? We want to make sure that our message goes to the general public. The general public should always be the, the, um, the audience, because um, we know it's very hard to change the minds of those hardcore deniers. So you can use a, a, something that comes from a conspiracy theorist as an excuse to talk about science, but the, the public should always be your audience. Um, and um, I think the other thing that's really important, and this goes to a lot of the things I said earlier, is that we want to try to encourage people to pause before they share. This is research that was done by Gordon Pennycook. And we know that this is largely a bottom-up phenomenon, not completely, but largely as people sharing stuff. So Gordon and his colleagues have found that if we can just nudge people to think about accuracy before they share, we can move the needle, right? And he found that in this study, 
that was backed up in this study, which was a very clever study, which has asked people to think about the accuracy of a headline before they shared. That had an impact. And here's a study by Gordon uh, that is, a again, a, a preprint, but very, very relevant that shows that in the context of the coronavirus, if we can just nudge people to think about accuracy, to embrace that concept before they share, we can have an impact. And so we're trying to do exactly that with this campaign that we call uh, Check Then Share. It's a campaign that we've aimed at the general public that's really trying just to encourage them to, to pause before they share, check before you share. Uh, and so that's what I hope, that a simple message, a simple evidence-based message that we can share with everyone. So please, please do exactly that. Share this message, but not the bad stuff. So I'm going to end there by saying thank you very, very much for this opportunity, you guys. I wish I was enjoying a pint with all of you. Uh, a really, really great opportunity. Uh, and thanks to the skeptics for all your hard work. Let's keep fighting the good fight. And I'll end with my two favorite words, go science. So thanks very, very much. everyone welcome back um i hope you enjoyed our little treat for you um so we are going to move straight into the q a with tim um and uh before we go on to the slido questions he's actually been considering uh what i asked him about tone because uh he was just saying that there are different opinions on that so i think we'll hand back to tim on that thanks yeah i mean your question was was excellent um you know does tone matter right you know it, it does being aggressive uh, matter? Does being um, a little bit snarky, is that bad? Is that bad? I, and I actually think it's maybe more complex than, I, that I, than a, how I framed it in my, in my presentation. You know, I think there are times when being snarky is not only okay, but entirely appropriate. So if, for example, uh, you know, a celebrity or um, someone who's trying to sell a product, if they're being if they're using misinformation to further their brand, I think it's entirely appropriate to be a little bit snarky, to be a little bit humorous, to be a little bit mocking. Um, I think it's more problematic when you're talking to an individual who is looking for answers, who perhaps has adopted a belief system. Now, what's interesting is I think that the body of evidence, and, and, and again, I have to be careful because you know, it's hard to do clinical trials on this. It's hard to get really good, robust data to back up what I'm about to say. But I think the body of evidence suggests that it backs up, you know, using aggressive language, um, not being authentic, uh, all of those things make you less credible. And I think that I, I think that there is a body of evidence to suggest that. And also the point about being humble is really, I think, important, because if you come across as dogmatic and as the science evolves, it becomes more difficult to incorporate that new evidence into whatever your messaging is going to be. So, you know, be humble, you know, personally, but also about, humble about, about what the evidence says. Now, having said that, there was an interesting study that came out recently that's, uh, if you want to find it, it's on the Harvard uh, Misinformation, the new journal from Harvard, I think it's called Misinformation, um, where they talk, and this came out just weeks ago, where they, their research suggests that tone doesn't really matter that much. Uh, whether you're angry or not angry. But I, I think, again, that's quite context specific. So I think it's safe, given the body of evidence, to err on the side of being, of being nice, of being authentic, and also listening, listening and, and getting a sense of what people's concerns really are. Great, thank you. Um, the first question is uh, a question about the fact that when we do have vaccines, um, we may not have enough to go around. And um, 
I think the person who asked it is wondering about who should get it, who should people choose, should people be targeted? What's the best way of dealing with it? Yeah, I I think for sure, uh, at least uh, a short term, there's not going to be enough to go around. We are going to have to make decisions. I think it's, you know, we're talking about hundreds of millions of vaccines, right? We're talking about an incredible, a massive need. Um, And so those conversations that people online probably know are starting, you know, people are starting to have those and they're interesting bioethical questions or questions about equity and justice um, that are being asked. uh, And um, I, I, it's very complex and I don't have an answer, but I will say, I will say we want to make sure that these decisions are not driven by misinformation. And and we're already starting to see a little bit about, about that in the context of who's going to get the vaccines first, right? Who ought to get them first? Um, and the key, I think, from the perspective of the talk tonight is let's make sure that whatever decisions being made is transparent. So we know what decision, how they're deciding who's going to get it. You know, what's the process to deciding what values are they using? What evidence are they using in order to make that those decisions? Um, and make sure that that twisted information is not sort of feeding uh, that process. Um, I, I, I think that there are they're they're going to have to make really tough decisions, and I think it's going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But at a minimum, I hope the decisions are transparent. I hope they're honest, and I hope we know what kind of evidence and what kind of values are being used to make those decisions. Yeah, I think we probably all hope that, but that's actually really well expressed. Thank you. Um, the next question is uh, from Skepti Kitty, uh, who is um, possibly in a position, same position of a, a number of people, who asks. She asks. How do we correct highly educated and senior colleagues who are blatantly misinformed but don't want to hear any of it? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a tough one uh, too because um, you know it's easy for me to to debunk Tom Brady or you know Lewis Hamilton who's you know pushing misinformation or or Gwyneth Paltrow, right? It's a different thing when a physician or a group of physicians pushes misinformation. So I think this is where. Um, the idea of the body of evidence and the scientific consensus is really important. Um, I mean, think about it. You think about um, people like Wakefield, Andrew Wakefield, who at least in, in his community is viewed as a very credible voice, right? Someone who has scientific authority. Think about the, what, what are they called? The American frontline doctors. You know, that's the group that put the video out just a few days ago. They're viewed as a credible source, a scientific source, right? Um, think about um, people who talk about GMOs, right? GMOs and climate change. Often, the, often the, the the information that's shared the most comes from people who are viewed as being scientifically credible, are 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 viewed as 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 experts. So, countering those voices, I think that's where the scientific consensus, body of evidence, independent sources of information, I think are are most most important, and also to highlight. The cherry picking of data that's so often so that, you know, debunking, you know, I can't remember what it was, number seven, maybe on my list, you know, highlighting the rhetorical devices that are used to push misinformation. You see the anti-vax community that all the time. So debunking those individuals, I think, is very, it's very useful to use the body of evidence, use the scientific consensus, and to point to the rhetorical devices that are used to forward their their position. And often there it is cherry picking. It's misrepresentation of, of risk and statistics that are, are often used. And um, People will say, oh, it's easy to say that. Does it really work? Well, there's some evidence it does work. And again, I think when we're talking about battling misinformation, the fight that we're all we're all involved in, we have to remember we're just trying to move the needle, right? This is not something that we're not going to, to solve overnight. 
But there is a little bit of evidence that suggests if you use those tools I just recommended, you, you can have an impact. And we've seen it even with things like uh, the anti-GMO community. We've seen it with the climate change community where pointing to the scientific consensus in a humble way uh, can, can help to move the ne needle. And I also think this is a really important time to talk about the, the concept of false balance. Because one of the ways that these experts, again, as everyone on the line know, you guys know this, I know, but it's, it's, it's good to talk about it. Um, one, of, one of the ways these experts get power is they position themselves as, you know, the other, other side, the, the alternative uh, view on a particular topic. And so highlighting the weight of evidence uh, and pushing against false balance, I think, is, is really important. And we saw that shift. I, I think with the popular press in the context of vaccines, it wasn't that long ago where you saw a lot more false balance in the context of vaccine in the popular press, same with alternative medicine. We're starting to see a little bit of a shift towards avoiding that. In fact, I, I was uh, supposed to do an interview not that long ago, um, very recently on, on anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers and the, and the CDC actually decided not to do it because they were worried about false balance. I think that's an evolution, right? And one of the ways that these experts, these people that seem credible, get, get power is through leveraging false balance. And so I think we want to highlight how problematic that is to the media, to our colleagues, and to really emphasize what the weight of evidence is on any particular topic. And really, you're, so you're suggesting using the same kind of debating strategies, whoever it is we're talking to? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and the other thing is, um, and I, I've done this, and I'm sure there are a lot of people online that have you know, debated these individuals. Even when I'm debating them on the media, and I, I, I really don't like those formats because that often lends itself to false balance. And I've actually even said that one time I was asked to debate a naturopath on CBC and I said, are you really sure? You know, because it creates this impression of false balance, right? Um, but even when I've had that opportunity or whether I'm doing it um, uh, as a third party, I always make sure it's the general public that is the audience and that I'm using those those strategies of about uh, uh, you know about you know using science using consensus highlighting the rhetorical devices and I think that's really important highlighting those rhetorical devices that are used in order to uh, to debunk them. Thanks. Um, Alice asks the next question. Uh, I think it's a really important one. How do we counter pseudoscience spreading tactics, uh, social media documentaries? when so much of it is slick and uses rhetoric so well? Are we skeptics behind? Uh, well, uh, you know, the, the answer is in the question. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think what we want to do is we want to use those creative communication strategies too, right? We absolutely. So I, I think it's, you know, this is an opportunity to reflect on just how powerful these tools are, right? Just how powerful these tools are. You know, I talked about a little bit in my presentation. Um, there is a lot of evidence that talks about, you know, the power of, of documentaries, um, the power of these narratives, the power of slick presentations, the power of, a, of, a, of an anecdote. You know, with, with people often ask me, because I do all this research on celebrities, you know, why, why do people believe celebrities and not scientists? Why do people think these celebrities are experts? I don't think they do, right? If we went out on the street, as my survey showed, right, I referred to some of this data, we go out on the street and we ask people, do you think Gwyneth Paltrow is a credible source of information? Most people are going to say no, right? They don't think that. Uh, but we know from the data they still have an impact. And that's because of the mere exposure effect, you know, the fact that they, they can just get that information out there. Uh, and, and also because they're this powerful anecdote. They're, you know, Tom Brady's a powerful anecdote. Lewis Hamilton's a powerful anecdote. That's why they have, have an impact despite the, the, 
the fact they don't have scientific credibility. So we have to use those same tools. Like we have to use uh, creative communication strategies. So let's use narratives. Let's use uh, humor. Uh, let's use powerful graphics. Um, let's use testimonials. But I'm not saying fight a testimonial with a testimonial. I'm not saying you use anecdote to fight an anecdote. But use testimonials and stories to get across the good, the good evidence. Um, look, it's it's not easy, and part of the reason it's not easy is the the production companies aren't necessarily buying into the strategy I'm I'm advocating. Right, the platforms aren't. So, as many people may know, I actually had a documentary uh, series on Netflix for two years. Um, we tried to make it as science based as possible. We tried to make it sort of respect respectful of other people's opinions and. And you know it, it got a great response, and I'm very grateful that for that a great response. Uh, but it was taken off when Gwyneth Paltrow's was put on the group. The group lab was put on. We have another one. Uh, we had what's the health on Netflix. We had the Game Changers on Netflix. We have Zach Efron's show on Netflix. And so it's very difficult to convince these platforms, these social media platforms, and these streaming platforms, and these production companies, for whatever reason to produce good science-based health data. I don't know why they're not interested in doing it. I believe there's an audience there. I think we have to tell these platforms there's an audience there. And I think, I don't wanna say shame, because I think it's never a good idea to shame them, but aggressively tell them <laughs> why these, these platforms or these shows are problematic, right? I, I think they need to know this, and they need to know it in this era uh, of misinformation because they are spreading it. And when, when something like, uh, you know, Zach Efron show shows up on social media or what's the health that shows up, it's very powerful. So we have to produce our own stuff like that. We've got to get it out there. And by the way, what we try to do in our very humble, small way with our campaign, check, then share is do exactly that. We try to use, you know, fun graphics. Uh, we try to use narratives and stories and a little bit of humor to get across our very simple, straightforward, evidence-based me message. And the other thing that we're doing, and forgive me for going on, you can tell I care about, <laughs> a lot about this question. The other thing that we're trying to do is, is work with uh, fine artists. So my brother's a, a fine artist professor, and uh, we have uh, sort of this broad initiative we call SciPop where we're trying to use fine arts to engage the public on these controversial issues. And um, we're trying to use fine arts, you know, sort of arresting images that are both commentary in their own right. You know, fine arts can be commentary in their own right, but also sort of as a tool to get people to pause and, and to reflect on accuracy before they go on to these other images. So uh, I think we need to get creative. We need to get slick, but we still need to be true to the science. Uh, I think we can do all of that. I think we can. And you're starting to see more and more entities do exactly that. So I'm a hopeful individual. I'm hopeful this is going to move us in the right direction. So, so SciPop is what you're doing with your brother. And what was the Netflix show that you had? Um, it was called A User, User's Guide to Cheating Death. A User's Guide to Cheating Death. I have found that. I've seen that one. I mean, I haven't yeah. watched it, but I found it. To, it was yeah. actually on BBC. I can't remember what it was at, where it was on in, uh, in the UK. Um, but it, you know, it was shown in over 60 countries. Right. Um, and we really did try to make it um, evidence-based. Um, uh, and we had a lot of experts and we tried to have a little bit of a narrative in every story. I was very proud of with that. And we tried to make it beautiful and the production value very, very high. And you're starting to see, unfortunately, a lot of the other, you know, celeb driven shows that are more wellness industry, more pseudoscience based, um, use very similar formats. And unfortunately, they're pushing misinformation.
But what's interesting about your title there is it doesn't it's not just, oh, look, that's one of our programmes. It's it's obviously got a much broader appeal. That's important. Uh, That's what we were hoping for. I think one of the things that skeptics always struggle with, um, and I'm sure everyone here can relate to this, is, you know, speaking to the converted. Right. You know, we we so often um, speak to our own community. We've got to figure out ways to get to get out there. Um, and so in our show and, and some of the books I've written, I really try to engage with the with the other side in a respectful manner. Sometimes it becomes humorous because you can't help how if their ideas are so absurd. But you really do want to try to be um, to let them speak. We want to listen to them, not in a false balance way. I think that's really important to, to differentiate between, OK, here is this perspective, but but more to learn what why they're attracted to this idea. Why are they attracted to this therapy? What's going on? And I've tried I've tried so many of these therapies. I've tried everything you can think of because I think it's important to experience it. You know, I really do. Right. Um the next couple of questions are, are sort of similar, but they're, asked, they're, they're angled towards different groups. So you may feel that you've answered them, but I think you've probably got something extra to say. The first one's from Marsh, who says, um, these days misinformation is spread through closed Facebook groups and WhatsApp shares. So how do we fight what we can't easily see? Because we're not in those groups. Yeah, this is um, a really good question. Um, and it is, I wish I had a simple answer. Um, and you're seeing these groups. So the good news is that that you're seeing these other kind of groups form um, that are positive, right? You know, these these positive groups, but these closed groups, and sometimes they're patient groups, right? Um, and uh, they're very difficult to, I, I, you know, you don't even want the word fight because I don't want to use combat language. Um, they're very difficult to counter. Um, and unfortunately, research tells us they're also very powerful. Um, and again, people online probably know this. Because there are often individuals going through a similar experience, this individuals with a similar values uh, system, there are individuals that have already bought into the ideology. And of course, of course, everyone knows this, they are this incredibly powerful confirmation bias machine, mm-hmm. right? Because they share uh, similar information. So, uh, you know, I wish I had a simple question, uh, a simple response. Um, there is some uh, data or some speculation from the anti-vax research that has noted that what we need to do is try to engage those communities. Um, uh, you've seen you've seen that in the United States where what they've done is gone to perhaps religious communities um, and tried to get them to be the messenger uh, of the science, you know, people that share similar values or people who are part of that community. And that can be very powerful. And this, of course, also goes to listening, right? Listening, what are their specific concerns? What, what would turn them around? But holy cow, this is really problematic and really challenging. Yeah, I have a friend who's left for a lupus group because she got fed up of being told that if she thought positively, it would help. Um, yeah, I, I've heard a lot of similar stories, the anti-vax one, you know, MS communities. And, uh, yeah. We we were going to do a, a study around, um, well, I won't talk about the specifics. I'll be very general, <laughs> generalized about it, but unproven M, uh, therapies for MS. And, you know, even though people were sympathetic to our, our research, um, the message kind of went out, don't collaborate or don't work uh, on this because you don't want to take away hope from the people that are doing it. And, and these, these communities, and I get it, I get it, right? These communities can be very, very, very powerful. You know, there is positive communities, so I don't want to make it sound like all these communities are bad, but it is, it is a challenge from a science communication perspective. Yeah, most of them are positive. But being usually, for most cases, being a member of a patient group bodes well for outcomes, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's one of the good news stories of social media, right, uh, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and, and some of these communities spread uh, help help spread positive messages. Well, a colleague of mine 
uh, Sandra McCon McCon did a really cool study on, on breastfeeding in public and talks about how groups on Instagram have really helped to normalize that and send positive messaging around that. So yeah, we want to be careful not to say everything's bad. There's really good news stories out there. So the next one is an, uh, is a slightly different angle is how do we find pseudoscience? How do we fight pseudoscience in a world where many don't believe scientists and experts anymore? Uh, and there's such a clear anti-expertise sentiment. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I wholly, it is becoming very difficult. And this is, I think, the biggest challenge, perhaps, perhaps the biggest challenge we absolutely have right now. Uh, and I touched on it a little bit when we were going to the polarization discourse. I think it's particularly bad uh, in the United States. Um, I think this is a good opportunity to talk about the deficit model. The people, you know what I mean by the deficit model? This is a, so the deficit model um, is another critique that is used to suggest that debunking doesn't work. And the idea here basically is if only people knew more about science, um, they would not believe these things, right? And the deficit model says, well, that's not the case at all, you know, that it's not just about this scientific deficit. It's about more. It's about values. It's about who you're listening to. And there's a lot of truth to that. But um, I think that concern is also overstated because there's also a lot of evidence that shows that that uh, and Gordon uh, Pennycook, our collaborators, found some of this in this context, that scientific knowledge does matter. Right. Critical thinking skills do matter. Um, and and trust in expertise does matter. Right. So there's been studies, for example, and again, uh, my usual caveat, hard to study this well because there's all these you know, variables and um, uh, confounding issues. But but. Recent studies suggest, for example, that trust in science, no surprise, but, but goes to this question, trust in uh, public health authorities, trust in science, all, those thing, all of those things are correlated with adopting you know, physical distancing, wearing masks, vaccines, you know, all of the things that we'd expect. So this question really, really does matter. So the good news thing is I, I think we, need to, we do need to take a step back and remember that um, most people say they trust scientists. Most mm -hmm. people do say they believe they trust academics and healthcare providers. Um, but um, there's also evidence that we're having this erosion in, in trust in institutions. Uh, research that came out right before the pandemic in, in Canada found an all-time level of low level of trust. Um, and so this, this issue of trust is so, so important. Um, and so I think we need to recognize it. And I think that we need to figure out why, what was causing people to distrust the scientific community. Um, I think we need to listen to those concerns, especially from disadvantaged communities that per perhaps particularly haven't, don't trust for good reason, uh, the scientific establishment. So that means good science, uh, science that's done well. Um, uh, that means trying to avoid scientific hype. This is something that we've studied a lot. You know, let's not misrepresent the science in order to get grants, in order to get headlines. Uh, this means uh, listening to people that are concerned about how the science is represented and done. This means being transparent when these controversies happen. Big Pharma has been a bad actor. It absolutely has. And that's one of the reasons people, every day someone points out Big Pharma to me, why people don't trust science. And, and also um, listening to people. I've said that a whole bunch of times uh, in, in this presentation, but, but there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that, and, and again, I think we need to be careful not to overinterpret this data, but both anecdotally and there's a little bit of evidence to suggest this is one of the reasons people turn from, for example, conventional healthcare. They feel like they haven't been listened to. They, they feel like their beliefs haven't been taken seriously. And then they turn to alternative views. And there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that happens. There's a really interesting study that, again, it was a small study. It's a qualitative study. But I find it fascinating. So I'm going to re um, relate it to you guys. 
I think it's probably really relevant to a lot of the work that you guys do. Uh, it was a study that found that why do people go to alternative therapy? Why do people start using it? Well, often people use it because they're looking for relief. They're looking for something that is efficacious, right? They were looking for something that is effective. They're not go necessarily going in, you know, thinking magical thinking, thinking about spiritual, thinking about supernatural things. They think something might work. They're open-minded. They go try this. Once they start using it, they adopt the philosophy, right? They, it's almost like a cognitive dissonance occurs. So now that I'm part of the community, I, I start to gravitate more to the philosophy, the magical thinking. And once that happens, it becomes more difficult to change people's minds. So I think it's really important to listen to why people are attracted to these things and why the, the erosion and trust might happen. I'm going to end with one. I'm sorry, this is a long response. It was a great, a great question. I apologize. Uh, there was a really interesting study uh, that came out, again, just a couple weeks ago that suggested that the pandemic is going to uh, actually result in a lowering in trust in science and a lowering in trust in scientific institutions and scientists, actually more the, the latter than the former. And, and that's because people are seeing how science is done now. They're, they're seeing the sausages being made right more than ever before. They're seeing the retractions. They're seeing the fights between experts. And, and that makes them believe in science less. So I think we need to remember that. The public is watching, right? So I think we need to be very careful how we communicate science. And it is a little bit of a science literacy issue. If we teach people early about how messy science is, this is a messy process. It's not magic. It's not a... a a list of facts that's uncovered. It's a process. It's a process that's always evolving. And I hope if, you know, perhaps if we can teach people that more, they'll have more trust uh, in, in the scientific enterprise. Yeah, you touched on one of my um, hobby horses there, which I'm, I'm going to take the opportunity of mentioning, which is people who've been let down by, um, by medicine. And we know that women, particularly middle-aged women's pain, is taken, they, men get much more pain relief in, in hospital than women do. And we know that women are taken less seriously. And then we get the thing about, oh, mums, anti-mums, as if there's something wrong with women. Yep. When they become a mother, they suddenly become stupid. And actually, that's just not the case. Sorry. You're right about that. And, and, and we see it with disadvantaged communities also, right? Um, so I, I think it's, it's really important to listen. You know, I, oft, I often get this critique when I talk about the wellness industry because it often is marketed less so now, less so now, but particularly early days marketed to women. It's now becoming, you know, everyone. Um, but that was a critique I often got. And it's a fair critique, right? You know, people are being driven in that direction. It's not just people who are uh, scientifically naive or uh, people go go to these these communities and go to these providers for a reason. Right. Um, next question is different. Um, it's from Anonymous. Uh, are celebrities more susceptible to conspiracy theories for some reason, or do we just notice them more? Um, so there is there is some people have speculated that they are more susceptible. I, in my book, the, the Gwyneth book, I kind of speculate on why uh, that might be the case. Um, uh, celebrities are under a tremendous amount of pressure to look a certain way. Uh, celebrities are often under tremendous pressure to, uh, you know, to say, to, to stay slim, to be fit, um, to stay looking young, particularly, uh, female, uh, you know, women, women celebrities. Um, and so there's some, and, and athletes, athletes are under tremendous pressure to try absolutely anything to, to be well, uh, to be ready, you know, to be on the field. So some people have speculated that that's one of the reasons that they gravitate more to um, to pseudoscience. Um, and, and, you know, look at, you know, you could say pejorative things, you know, they're often not educated. You know, I think we don't even need to go there. You know, I think we can just say that often um, 
that's why they're, they're, they, they see this stuff more often because they're searching for answers. Then, of course, you have to remember a lot of celebrities, they have a lot of people in their ear, right? They have a lot of people in their ear talking to them. So they may be more apt to see this come across their, their field. And often they're in communities that are may, may be more open to these kinds of, of different views. But the important thing is they have a huge me- a megaphone, right? So often, you know, we, I, we pick on people like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, you know, and all these other people. But sometimes we actually did a study, we call it implicit hype. You know, this happens often with uh, celebrity athletes. Sometimes they're not even marketing anything, right? They're just, they're just pontificating about their life and the things that they do um, and the things that they do to be healthy. And that becomes advice for the general public. And it's often pseudoscience. And, and what, what happens is, is that those comments often appear in the sports pages. They appear in the celebrity section. And so the, the journalist isn't critiquing what they're saying. Uh, and we found that with sports uh, stars talking about the things that they do to stay healthy or perhaps they're injured and all the unproven therapies they use. And they almost always those comments almost always end up in the sports pages. Uh, and, you know, it's not a scientist, scientific journal journalist doing, reporting on this. So but that implicit hype still matters. Right. It still has an impact on how people view whatever they're talking about. Um, and it can have an impact on expectations, on beliefs, and on the utilization of those therapies. So a bit of both. They are more susceptible, yeah. and we notice them more, yeah. Yeah, exactly um, right. Uh, next question is from Skeptical Gumby from Oxford, and she asks, um, could you expand a bit on the withdrawal of the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine papers on hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, that, that was a very interesting and frustrating um, a story. And it's actually one I'm using as a case study in, in the paper I'm writing for the Royal Society uh, of Canada on, the repres- on, on public representations of science, because it is such a good example. The hydroxychloroquine story is such a great example of all the things that we've talked about today, right? You know, it started with a, a preprint from France, well, at least the public face of it. it started with a, a preprint from France. It was a methodologically flawed study. Um, that immediately got picked up by prominent individuals that created momentum around this idea. It started to attract conspiracy theories. Uh, it led to what some people would suggest is an unreasonable amount of clinical trials that sucked resources and, uh, and oxygen from other kind of research that could have been done. Uh, and then we started to get things like um, a study saying it's not efficacious, and then things like the Lancet study that suggested uh, it would had you know cardi- severe cardiac uh, effects. And as people uh, online probably know, uh, that study came out, and there was an immediate reaction both in the popular press on social media and by individuals uh, and entities doing clinical trials. So the World Health Organization paused their trial. I think the CDC paused theirs. Uh, there were ones going on in Canada that were paused as a result of that study, right? Um, and then almost immediately, it was like, this all played out within days. There is uh, scientists questioning the data that was used in order to back up the, that, that funding, you know, and, and basically it was the database that was used to, for, for the Lancet uh, publication that was questioned. And that, the details of that are still un, uh, unfolding, but basically the data wasn't good. And there's questions about peer review. There's questions about why co-authors did not know about the questionable data. Uh, there's questions about, you know, why it was published at all. Um, the good news is it was retracted quickly. But despite that, and this is another reason it's such uh, an important part of the overall hydroxychloroquine story, it has added to the confusion around hydroxychloroquine and, and added to the conspiracy theories. 
So I think it shows the importance of good science and shows the importance of being transparent. Uh, and it has shown that the, the, uh, the impact that misinformation can have almost, almost immediately. And of course, of course, one of the reasons I'm writing about it is I'm worried about the impact that has on public trust. Um, some people have noticed like Retraction Watch, they do a great job on this on these kinds of things. You know, they've tried to say, look, this is how science happens. Retractions happen. And, and it, it's yes, it's a really it's a bad news story, but it's also a good news story. It shows how social media and the scientific community have these post publication peer review always going on, trying to to make the science make the science better. Yeah. So people can say, look, see. Science works, or C told you science didn't work. Right. Exactly the same. How? Yeah. So how do we get them to see do the first one? So, uh, I, um, I think it's a it's a science literacy issue. I think the first yeah. one. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, the next question's anonymous. Uh, they ask trying to access real real info. Sorry, trying to access real info. Um, a lot of it's behind a paywall, but misinformation is free. Legitimate journalism isn't free. So can anything be done to help? Um, another great question. Uh, so one of the things that many people are advocating for, um, uh, and, and actually some of this advocacy came even in response to the uh, hydroxychloroquine debacle, uh, is for more entities that are aggregated, so independent entities, like so we know that they are funded independently and they have an independent oversight, independent, and I agree with this recommendation, by the way, that are aggregate the science in a responsible manner. So like, like the Cochrane collaboration, but perhaps even more uh, focused on, on the general public. And one of the reasons people have advocated for that is exactly what this question points to. Um, you know, I can say, go to the good science, you know, go to this clinical trial, uh, go, go to the systematic meta review. But if, if it's behind a paywall, people can't do that. So people have recommended that we have, you know, that, that uh, research funding aid entities uh, support the bodies that aggregate the science in a responsible manner that is accessible both to policymakers, but also also to the general public. So that's one thing I think needs to happen in the future. We need more of that. Um, the other question, though, I think is is really challenging. You know, a, a component of this question is really challenging because, you know, I'm very active on social media and I'll often post something, say, from The Washington Post. It's great. And they have a lot of great science writers there that do really provocative and I think science informed pieces. And I'll post it and someone will go, well, you know, thanks for that, but it was behind a paywall. And, they, and they'll say that kind of snarkily. And the, and the journalist will actually reply, reply and say, hey, I need to get paid for what I do, All right? Um, you know, good journalism is under siege right now. So what a fascinating tension that we're, we're fighting right now. We want this to be open access. We want the, the public to, to see it, but we want these institutions to be funded. Um, so a real broad challenge for our democracies, right? You know, how can we do this? How can we do this? And I think we need to figure out a way that we can strike strike a balance. Uh, also tied into this, sorry, again, another long response to a great question, is the problem of predatory journals. Because as everyone probably knows, one of the answers has been open access journals. And I publish in open access journals, but they're not cheap, you guys. They're not cheap. Even the good ones aren't cheap. You, so what happens is you write a, uh, an article, you submit it for publication, it goes out for peer review, uh, it gets accepted, and then they ask for a fee. And uh, so what ends up happening is you pay from your research grant. So public research funding is paying for us to publish in these open access journals. Okay, that's okay, because we put it in our, when we get a grant, we put it as a, as a budget item. But there's also now these predatory journals that are out there that are doing the same thing. So a predatory journal is one that has questionable peer review, 
if they're peer review at all, <laughs> fraudulent peer review, maybe even in questionable editorial boards, they're just money grabs. And often public research dollars are going to fund these these predatory journals. So we have to sort that out too, because what's happening is people have access to that stuff because it's open access almost always and not access to the good stuff. So what I think we need is we need scientists getting out there, aggregating the good evidence in a way that's accessible. That was one of my early points in my list. That's one way to help this op open access problem and all those else screenshot conclusions. We need to have uh, open access, uh, responsible aggregation of, of, uh, the science that's available. Um, and I think we need to, to find a way that we can fund good journalism, that we can fund this research in an open access way. Uh, I think this is one of the great challenges uh, of our time. And would you say that the same applied to papers like the Washington Post? Uh, I do. But listen, listen, I, I think that we need to fund, you know, the guy follow the Guardian and, you know, they ask for me to fund yeah. them every day. Right? Uh, and uh, Vox that does, you know, they've got some great journal. Julia Ballou, is, I don't know if you know Julia Ballou. She does fantastic stuff, science writer. Um, um, they're, you know, they're asking for donations. Um, yeah. And so you understand why journalists can get snarky when they, when someone says, why isn't this open access? Well, I don't do my work for free and this is important work. Uh, so we got to figure this out. And I unfortunately don't have an answer. They, I'm sure people have heard there's interesting questions. People have said we need a tax structure. We need to tax platforms like Google and Facebook in order to fund the independently fund with independent oversight, this kind of journalism and this kind of uh, research, interesting proposals. But we, yeah, we've got to figure this out. That was a great question. I, I imagine there's a number of people in this audience who actually contribute regularly to The Guardian. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of audience that would, I suspect. Um, the next question is from Susan Jerbeck. And she's asking about Wikipedia and what you think about the impact that groups like uh, Guerrilla Skepticism uh, on Wikipedia. And I mean, there's other groups like Women in Science who also do this. Uh, what do you think about their impact on, on the veracity of Wikipedia? You know, I, I think this is great. I, you know, Wikipedia is um, I can't remember the data and, and, and this community probably knows better than I do. They have a tremendous impact, you know, really tremendous impact. You just, you know, a tr tremendous impact of the. Uh, people who are, you know, students, you know, there's interesting research that shows the degree to which it influenced the research they do for better or worse. Uh, so I think this research is, this, this kind of work is incredibly important, right? Because we need that kind of oversight. One of the good news stories, I think I touched on this very briefly in my presentation is entities like this emerging, right? That we need more of these groups that are doing tremendous work. Uh, it, it's almost like the science advocacy community is starting to create these wonderful communities. And, they're, and a lot of them are really fun communities, right? Which is great, uh, like the one I'm with or talking to right now, um, to counter, to counter the, the, those, all those communities out there, those wellness communities that, that almost felt like they got a head start, right? And now we're starting to see uh, a countering of it. And, and many of these, like the ones that you referenced, are very sophisticated uh, and they're doing great work. They're almost like a, I don't want to say a peer review, but there's this ongoing scrutiny, it's a good way to put it, uh, of, of the public record. Uh, and that's really, I think that's really important. And so I, you know, I thank them for their work. Yeah, thank you. Um, Dave asks the next question. Uh, he says, with these surveys, such as one in four disbelieve the coronavirus conspiracy, what, what you know what I mean by that, uh, how much skepticism has been applied to the methodologies of the surveys that find these results? It, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a really great question. We do survey research ourselves, so I'm going to sound like I'm being defensive. <laughs> so, hey, uh, this is a, a very good point. Um, we need to be always be skeptical of, of surveys because so much of it is how you ask it. Uh, has to do with the timing uh, of the survey. Um, it has to do um, also with who you survey, obviously. Um, uh, some of the surveys that I referenced are, I think, more robust than others. You know, you have entities like Pew in the United States, you know, I, the many of them that, that I, I think they do quite sophisticated surveys and they're aware of the methodological limitations. Um, having said all that, I think we have to always be careful not to overinterpret the value of surveys. Um, I try to use them as sort of a, uh, a sentiment, uh, you know, just this is what where the direction that the public is signaling. Right. Um, I'm actually a little bit skeptical about both the vaccine. I, I'm OK. I'm trying to be optimistic. <laughs> I'm trying to be optimistic about these negative vaccine ones. Uh, I'm hopeful that once their apps actually produced, that we are going to kind of bounce back to the usual no, the usual vaccination hesitant net levels. Um, the hardcore anti-vaxxers and then that sort of normal level of, of hesitancy that we see around the well-known uh, vaccines. I I'm hopeful that's where we're going to go, but I don't know because you look at the, what the surveys have said about uh, the hesitancy around flu vaccines and they kind of do map what act the actual uptake, right? Um, I'm also a little bit, you know, the, the, I, I was surprised about a lot of the um, the beliefs and, and conspiracy theories around the coronavirus because they are higher than the usual kind of beliefs you see in conspiracy theories, uh, which actually, as this group probably knows well, yes, there has been an uptake in belief in conspiracy theories, but it kind of ticks along, right? You know, it, it isn't a huge sector of society. It's, it's a, a pretty usual but ticking up uh, group of, of individuals, but we are starting to see more of it. And the other thing that I'm worried about is the increasing uh, degree to which these conspiracy theories are tied to political movements and to, tied to ideological beliefs that I think make them more entrenched and perhaps a little bit more um, appealing. Uh, uh, and I'll reference one more study. I know we're running out of time. You know, there was an interesting study. I, it was done with the uh, fluoride. And what they found was that when people use ideologically appealing ideas like choice, um, like liberty, um, they're more likely to believe the associated conspiracy theory. And of course, you see that with the fluoride. You know, why? This is about choice. This isn't about being anti-science. This is about liberty. This isn't about being anti-science. And we're seeing that kind of rhetorical strategy, I think, and I don't have evidence to back this up, but I believe we're seeing those kind of tactics increase, and we're definitely seeing them increase in the context uh, of the coronavirus and, and, COVID, and all of the desired um, public health responses. Right. I've, you, you're right to have an eye on the time. We have got so many more um, such good questions that uh, maybe a couple more. Would that be OK? Please. Yeah. yeah? Um, they, they really are such excellent questions. I feel I feel sad about missing <laughs> the ones that are slightly lower down. I'm sorry about my long responses. <laughs> no, no, it's really interesting. I mean, you give it you, you're they're such fascinating and, and thoughtful answers. It's really good. Thank you. Um, I think often people like to hear an in-depth discussion rather than a quick rattle through lots. Um, so this is the kind of argument I think that people get certainly online. Uh, the question is, if a person rejects mainstream news because they reject argument from authority, uh, and they clearly haven't understood argument from authority, uh, how do you persuade them to trust ma mainstream news publishers and not others? Um, 
Well, I, I, again, you're going to hate my response. <laughs> it's it's hard. You know, evidence tells us because those are the kind of individuals that um, are more likely to be the hardcore, um, the hardcore uh, conspiracy theorists. Not all of them, right? Now, as you probably know, the news media falls on this ideological spectrum, and you can kind of, the people have done this work, they've kind of mapped uh, conspiracy theory belief based on that, right? So there is this massive confirmation bias, bias going on. And I referred to this uh, research earlier uh, that shows that those who listen to mainstream media, those who listen to the traditional news sources are more likely uh, to not believe uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, but those that research is a little bit of a chicken and egg thing. It's not, you know, cause and effect uh, um, research, uh, not cause and effect research. So, you know, this this is, you know, I think this is a real challenge. So what I do and I don't have evidence to back this up is I again go to that um, idea of talk, speaking to consensus around the science, the science removed from the media source, the science removed uh, from the ideological spin. It's very hard to do that because the hardcore conspiracy theorists always have an answer for, for that. So again, what you want to do is make sure whatever your response is, is for the general public. You're not maybe going to change this person's mind, but you may have an influence on someone who's hesitant, for example. So if you're just arguing with that person, give up. Unless yeah, you're it, might, doing it, for <laughs> it may not work, might not go anywhere. I get sucked in, though, you guys. I get it. I get it. I go down that vortex all the time. Um, and the next, uh, the next question I'm going to have to make... Um, Oh, I'm getting requests. Right. I think I think it will. There are there's so many good questions. Um, oh, dear. Marianne, David, Andy, you've all asked such wonderful questions. But I'm actually going to plump the last question by Marsh. Um, uh, he's and he asks on the stats around belief mis misinformation in Canada. Obviously, a lot of that belief is influenced by America uh, and obviously, therefore, English language. Does the same thing hold in the French language areas as well? Oh, I, you know what? You're gonna you're making me end on a question that I don't know the answer to. <laughs> so, I swear you thought that is such an interesting question. Um, oh, it's my opportunity to be humble. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, I will say this, um, you know, because I, I we focus so much on English language, even though I live in a country where we should do more French. We have I have a colleagues in Quebec that I work with. Uh, work with frequently. Uh, but we do know, for example, and I'm sure many people in, in the audience know this, that France has the highest level of vaccination hesitancy, I believe, in the OECD. Uh, I think that's the case. Um, and so, uh, yes, there. And, and if you look at the belief in conspiracy theories in the context of uh, other countries uh, with COVID, uh, we absolutely see high levels uh, of belief. So this isn't just English, English language countries. H having said that, the power of the pop culture from the United States is really what I think it's doing is it's it's lending itself to the polarization um, problem uh, more than anything. Um, and I, I don't necessarily have data to back that, up, but uh, I, I think that's true. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>